0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode twenty-six of the Ball and Chain podcast. I am your host, as always, Mark Thomas, coming to you from increasingly warmer and uh, very sunny Southern California, and happy to have everybody uh, tuning in today. I've got a really awesome guest uh, who I'll get to here in a second. In the meantime. Uh, few other kind of sporting world updates here, uh, specifically for my teams, my bucks have, uh, really got some major issues. Um, we'll be talking about that with uh, Jess on the podcast tomorrow um conversely my brewers are on a hot streak and are now in first place in the nl central so that's always good uh, unfortunately that's the regular season and the bucks are the postseason so um i'd much rather would much rather have the the bucks on the winning streak right now than the brewers um and uh looks like baseball's got a few other uh issues with regards to trying to get all the pitchers uh to give up whatever uh substances they're using on the uh, mound Uh, To increase their spin rate. Looks like they're cracking down on that. Uh, But otherwise, I think kind of a, you know, pretty normal time of year here uh, for sports, not anything else too uh, crazy going on. Um, And uh, before we get to our guests, as always, the podcast is brought to you uh, by Zen Sports, which is the platform, uh, sports betting platform, offering more choice uh, to sports betting customers than anything else out there, and which will be Uh, hopefully licensed and uh, certified in Nevada by August. Um, So with all that kind of out of the way, uh, I am excited to welcome our next guest uh, on the pod. His name is Justin Jacobson, and he is an attorney from the Jacobson firm, and he specializes in the esports and sporting and entertainment world um, for all things uh, legal and uh, uh, legal related. I'm excited to have Justin on the pod. Welcome, Justin, to the Ball and Chain Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So, uh, I'm a big as is, is, uh, weird as this may sound. I actually am a big fan of uh, the legal world, uh, not just because we as Zen Sports in the gaming space and the cryptocurrency space deal with legal matters at all times, which we do. Um, but I just I just find it really always fascinating, kind of how. Fast-paced law actually uh, is uh, compared to kind of the common perception, and you know, as we're going to get to here in a second, um, or as you're going to get to here in a second, you know, within the entertainment and the sports and the esports world, I think that's probably even more so than people realize, um, and I think there's some really interesting aspects. Um, you know, uh, that you touch on and that you've had experience with that I think would be great. So why don't we first start off with just you giving kind of a, a few minute overview background of uh, your work experience uh, working uh, in, again, sports, esports and entertainment um, on the on the legal side of things and what you do on a day in a day out basis. And we'll just kind of go from there.
1: Awesome. That sounds great. So, you know, I'm glad that we're in a a lawyer-friendly room. I know know sometimes people are like, oh, lawyer's that guy. But, you know, I'm a fun lawyer, you know. As you say, I'm an an eSports entertainment attorney. And for the last decade, I've handled legal and business matters for professional athletes, musicians, pro gamers, fashion designers, streamers, coaches, casters, and all kinds of individuals in the eSports, music, fashion, art, movies, and sports space. I've worked with you know, some NFL and NBA players, some MLB players, and with a bunch of different um, agents on behalf of their talent. I'm also in charge of Ford Models, Esports, and Gaming Talent Division, which those who aren't familiar, Ford Models is a high-end fashion and modeling agency that really kind of shifted their focus to become a more traditional talent agency. So I handle the day-to-day management and development of over 20 different gaming talent, including pro gamers, streamers, Coaches, casters, and other personalities. I'm also currently teaching esports business at the University of North Carolina Wilmington, and nice. authored an esports
0: um, business law book. Wow, awesome! So you've done you've done a lot. So why don't we dive into some of the things that you actually tackle uh, from a, a, a legal perspective? So so rep- let's start first on kind of the traditional sports side, and we'll migrate and work our way over to the other stuff on the esports side. So um, so are you actually doing kind of like agency representation of athletes uh helping them you know negotiate their contracts with teams and stuff or is it more uh on a on a like a case or litigation uh type situation like if something comes up after they've already you know been playing or signed with the team
1: well you know i'm not you know certified agent so i'm not really involved in their actual player contracts and the you know the athletic side but for the Mm -hmm. pro gamers and streamers i'm handling those contracts but with the athletes it's more you know retired players maybe helping them with their kind of secondary businesses one of the players we work with i'm helping with all his ip so trademarking his different brands and companies and patterning different stuff he's working on and then some of the um current players we kind of work directly with their agent and a lot of trademarking, copyright matters that maybe aren't necessarily within their wheelhouse We also work with some visas to help players and musicians and pro gamers get them to come to the country. So really trying to fit in the gaps that maybe the traditional sports agent isn't doing. Also doing a lot of stuff with nonprofit, helping them kind of set it up as well as actually handle the fundraising and helping them promote and throw events.
0: Got it. Okay, cool. So um, it sounds like you do a lot of, of work on the IP side of things. Uh, what kind of, I guess, intellectual property matters might come up? Um, I mean, you don't have to be specific about any one particular client, but just in general, kind of, you know, what types of IP issues would one uh, find uh, when working with high profile athletes or, uh, or even maybe not so high profile esports players? Um, or high profile esports players, I guess. Um, you know, what kinds of, because uh, we, you know, you, one doesn't necessarily generally think of, you know, intellectual property when it comes to um, to sports or esports players for that matter. Um, so it'd be kind of cool if uh, do you have a couple of examples of things that, you know, could theoretically come up with, with those types of clients.
1: Yeah. So I mean, you know, IP for everyone who knows intellectual property. And the two biggest forms that I work with are trademarks and copyrights. There's also patents, which are, bit more complicated and mostly for the athletes and even the pro gamers it's really kind of on the brand building side you know one of the pro baseball players we work with actually has a clothing line so we helped him trademark the clothing line name and different slogans for it and the hashtag for it and you know because he played in multiple countries you we actually protected here and you know abroad in the countries he played in so mm-hmm. we we're really able to help him protect his ancillary business stuff that's not necessarily his on-field performance type matters.
0: Right, that's interesting. And I mean, I guess, do you, do you see like um, kind of a lot of uh, litigation or matters that could come up with stuff like that? I mean, is it, is it something where, you know, if it's not protected, there's a real legitimate threat of, you know, somebody using their likeness or somebody using their, I don't know, pictures and stuff like that and, and some of their, I guess, marketing materials that they might have for their other businesses?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's always that chance, and you know, regarding copyrights, may help copyright a logo if they had a cool one design. If they're using it for merch, you know, because you have to think about the athletes that really try to develop more off-field personas, whether it's you know T-shirts and hats with the cool TB logo on it, or you know anything that's like kind of an extension of them that's not necessarily intertwined with the team, isn't really involved in the team. So in terms of litigation, there's you know there's always issues with you know people trying to sell knockoff merchandise and having to try to protect them with those kind of things. And that's where these you know, legal protections like a trademark registration or copyright registration are beneficial.
0: Interesting. So I mean you've obviously done a lot on the esports side of things. And esports for those of uh, you know our listeners who may be not as familiar with that. Um, you know, it's certainly a, a much newer phenomenon when it comes to organized competition. Um, it's growing and growing rapidly. Uh, and for example, in Zen Sports, we offer betting on uh, different esports leagues and tournaments. We even host some of our own as well. Um, but I think it's interesting uh, for those that may not be as familiar um, with the esports world, kind of what that all entails. You know, how do you how, how does the esports athlete differ from traditional athletes, um, you know, I I mean, both on the legal side and the non-legal side, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, because it's such a different world than a lot of people are used to. What do what those interactions with your esports clients look like?
1: Well, yeah, for, you know, for those uninitiated, esports is kind of this professional video games where individuals or teams of individuals are actually you know playing in a video game whether it's Fortnite or Call of Duty or Overwatch or League of Legends for you know sometimes substantial amounts of money six figures or sometimes seven figures so it's you know there's really huge evolving area and what I thought was nice and what really kind of let me transition from the more entertainment, music, and sports world that I came from into esports and gaming was a lot of the similarities. A lot of the legal protections and concepts that you might have for a pro athlete or a musician or a DJ were really applicable to a pro gamer or a streamer or a team where you know you want to protect your gamer tag the same way you protect your DJ or artist name, the same way you have a logo that's you know used on your merchandise. So it's just kind of there was a lot of similarities the structuring, whether it's loan out companies to kind of protect your assets, whether it's a corporation or LLC, there are just a lot of similarities to how these talent and influencers operate, you know, their name and likeness, the value and sponsorship using their social media platforms and everything that kind of comes along with that. We're all just a lot of similarities. And realistically, the only big difference was, you know, you're playing Madden on the video game as opposed to playing football on the football field. And it really just kind of came down to, Understanding the way some of these different businesses differentiate because you know, in this digital world, there's a lot of unique opportunities that might not exist for a football player. You're not going to be able to sell a digital skin or an in game item that has an esports team or a gamer's name on it. We saw um, a Vikings player that was just kind of um, brought into Fortnite, but you know, that's the rare case. Whereas Mm -hmm. a lot of teams and a lot of top players are incorporated into the game in some fashion, so. You know, there's definitely a lot of similarities in the way you approach it and how you handle it. But obviously, being it's a little bit more mature and it has this whole digital aspect, there's just some nuances involved.
0: Yeah. And so, maybe stepping away from the players for a second here. I mean, uh, one of the things that I've seen in the esports world is kind of especially from the betting angle side of things. Um, you know, since that's obviously what we do here at Zen Sports, I, I think what's really interesting is. If you compare esports leagues and tournaments to, I don't know, just let's just use the NFL uh, as an example, Um, you know, the NFL is very, very, very buttoned up in terms of, you know, all of their, just everything for them, right. From player drafting to player contracts, to league schedules, to playoff formats. And of course they make tweaks from year to year, but it's very, very like meticulous. And then even if you kind of go at the granular level, Uh, Like scheduled start times of games. Well, they certainly will move them. You know, they generally basically adhere to them. But one thing we've seen in esports, it's a little bit like the Wild Wild West where. You know, it's kind of like anything goes, hey, these tournaments might be set up like this, but a team might end up forfeiting or not be able to field enough players. Or, hey, they've got the the match scheduled for 2 p.m. Eastern time, but they just decide randomly for no reason at all to start at 1230 p.m. You know, Eastern time, which and the reason I bring this up is because it can actually throw off betting Uh, and and same thing for data, right? Getting good data feeds and good accuracy on that stuff like that. So from a legal perspective or even a non-legal perspective, you know, how do you see kind of the a stage that esports is at certainly not as mature as the nfl but that's okay i mean it's growing um and what does it need to do to kind of get to that next level where it is as respected and um as kind of um uniform um or as i guess buttoned up as say other kind of more traditional sports leagues
1: i mean i think what's unique about esports from regular sports is because the game publisher, the developer who kind of actually owns the game, they have a lot of say in everything involved in the game. So they can control the competitive scene or they cannot be involved at all. They can take a middle ground and kind of be involved or they can select who runs stuff for them. So whereas the NFL, there's only one NFL. And I think that ultimately, you know, esports, especially globally and, you know, Asia and South Korea and China particularly – there's huge, huge interest, you know, it's way beyond what I think anyone else really understands and you start to see it starting to creep into, you know, North America and the U S and I really, it's on a trajectory where the next generation of kids, the kids that are, you know, 10, 12, 11, 15 years old as they grow up, cause they've kind of grown up in this fully digital everything age where the NFL and the NBA and baseball is just not you know it was interesting to them it's just not the same allure that it might have had for the previous generations but you know from the widdulous kid sitting at a dinner table with an ipad put in his face from his parents like it's just what this consumer looks so i think ultimately it's just going to continue to grow and more kind of titles and games are going to continue to set themselves apart, but there'll also always be this rotating. This game is hot. This is fun. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're going to play this for a while. And then after a while it gets stale. And then when the new version comes out, the new release, it gets funding again. So I think that that's always going to be something that esports is going to have. That's going to be kind of almost a bump in the road in some thoughts where, you know, baseball is baseball. Like you said, they right. may make, certain changes to it but you know you have call of duty pro league going from five on five rosters the next season to four on four rosters right you literally change the entire everything where now you have one less player so there's you know one less person to do x y and z there's less communication so it's just kind of like you're changing the whole entire gameplay and then also in esports there's what are called you know updates and patches where they're actually changing the meta or how the game operates where it's like okay this character is too strong so we're going to make him weaker or right. this guy isn't strong enough so we're going to make him stronger and then it kind of starts changing your whole entire strategy because of these tweaks. where you know a f- you know in football it's not always it's not going to become 15 yards for a first down <laughs> as opposed to 10 right. yards just because oh 10 yards is too easy let's make it a little harder so right. you know but in you know the equivalent in esports like they can change it where you know an overpowering gun is nerfed as they say and now something everyone was using oh well we can't use it because it's not as good so now we have to find a better gun or you know use something that maybe we didn't want to necessarily
0: right now i mean you know the, the traditional sports leagues make some tweaks i mean like when they move the uh you know the the extra point back you know the uh, you, know, uh, 15 yeah, extra you know once yards, a decade
1: so they'll make a you know different unique
0: upgrades but it's not but it's not as real time as esports so maybe along those lines what i think could be possibly interesting it's obviously you know already in that direction which is maybe the game titles themselves don't have um you know the leagues per se but like the the publishers um if they're the ones that you know will have that'll be riot games leagues or blizzard leagues whatever they might be and it's just all their games are rolled up under that and you know they obviously change from one season to the next based on the game title, or if it's popular or not, or, or whatever it might be. Um, but do you see, I guess, uniformity, maybe not coming to the actual games themselves, because those are changing all the time. But do you see uniformity coming to just maybe, I guess, how they're managed and how they're structured and run?
1: I mean, we've already seen a recent shift in the last few years to this more franchise model where you have publishers and the two that you named Activision Blizzard and Riot Games kind of mimicking the traditional sports franchise where mm-hmm. a team buys geographic rights to New York or Chicago and they get to the host home games there and they can now engage with their local fan base. And, you know, previously in esports, there was this thing called relegation, which I'm sure if some familiar from the soccer and, you know, the European football world where if you're one of the bottom teams in your league you can kind of get relegated to like the minor league like you know you're not in the premier league you're down in the other league so esports kind of had that for a lot of their bigger leagues and tournaments where if you didn't place a certain um kind of placing and ranking in the tournament or in the throughout a season you wouldn't be in the main league you might be in the contenders league instead of the the main league and that obviously impacts your exposure your sponsors how much money you're potentially going to make because you know being on the huge main stage in front of 100,000 people versus being on the other stage in front of 10,000 that's a huge difference so the idea of bringing these franchises similar to sports where it's like you're going to always have your spot you're going to be able to build the team you're going to be able to be the pipeline you're going to develop your local market because you're not just always trying to win and always trying to stay in the league and, you know, spending as much money to get the best player. Cause you have to win at all costs because if you lose and you're not in the league, you lose all your sponsors and, you know, and it's just kind of these like cost benefit analysis where it's like, we have to spend X because if we don't spend it, we're going to lose Y. And if we lose Y, we're not going to be able to exist much longer. So it is a unique problem that was kind of solved. And You know, I think that you'll see it as more titles kind of gain clarity, where it's like, okay, we're going to spend a few years in this game, so let's build a community around it and try to get the local market and you know, try to find the random people in you know the town that maybe play the game for fun and have no idea that there's this whole competitive world of, you know, I know all of us think we're the best 2K or Madden player or FIFA or (laughs) call, but let me tell you, these kids are just on another level and it's insane to see some of the timing and some of the things that they
0: pull. Right. Well, so I think you actually kind of got close to an idea that I think would actually allow it to really drive the popularity and kind of goes to what I said at minute but it's slightly different, which is, you know, if you actually have geographic regions by franchise, not by game title, because the games can be changing. In fact, that can actually be part of the fun is, Hey, which game is this week? you know, are they going to play this month or whatever it might be, uh, or this season. But, um, you know, you have the publishers or you, the publishers sell the rights to a geographic region for all their games, right? Uh, And I don't know, you can just pick 10 geographic regions to start with and all the, you know, kind of major cities. And uh, you sell, uh, you know, those geographic rights to 10 different owners. And uh, you have the whatever uh, North American, you know, Riot Games uh, League or whatever it might be. And they come up with a schedule of what the games are going to be, right? That year. So that it does stay fresh. And so it's not, you know, the same thing. But what does stay constant is kind of the geographic territory and maybe who the publisher is. And I guess the reason why it feels to me like that would make a lot of sense and really drive popularity is because one of the big reasons that a lot of traditional sports is popular and why I'm a diehard, you know, football, basketball, baseball, and pretty diehard hockey fan is because I have a hometown team to root for. And that's what got me sucked into. Watching it was going to the games, going to the arenas, um, having that home team that was local to me to cheer on, to talk trash to other you know, opposing cities, fans and all that kind of stuff. It feels to me like that would probably drive some more loyalty uh, to to e in general um, is by having that local presence, um, both on TV as well as that you can go to and just having that uh, sense of pride in that local community for those teams. What are your thoughts of, uh, around about that?
1: I mean, I think that's definitely a really interesting idea. I think right now it's kind of like that in the fact of like most teams that own an Overwatch League franchise also own a Call of Duty Pro League, which is the same developer. Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, maybe having where it's okay, your team, you know, your Chicago Liquid and you have a Heroes of the Storm and a Starcraft and all four of our big games, and we're just each week is a different one. And you you as a team have to maintain all these different games. And Mm -hmm. I think the thing comes is, different games will be more popular than others where, you know, a Starcraft two game might've been, you know, so popular a decade ago, whereas now it's kind of on the downswing. And, you know, it's one of these things where they're almost picking the ones that they think you're going to get the best return on that, like, Oh, call of duty and overwatch. That's like our really big new titles. And, you know, when overwatch two comes out, this'll be the next title. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I see how it, you know, it could work both ways and it's almost like, some teams may not want to have to field all those as well, you know, cause like a heroes of the storm team might not make much money for them. And, you know, depending on how it's structured, they might cost similar to another game that might make more. And, you know, I think it really takes away some of the flexibility for the team, but obviously as a fan and, you know, someone trying to create this local um, affinity, it's like, yeah, like I'm rooting for the New York team. Doesn't matter what game they're playing. Right. And I think that, you know, that's almost what they're trying to get to. And I think they almost maybe pick the ones that they think are the most popular to start with to be like, okay, well, you know, we're the Chicago optic and, you know, we're going to start with this and then we're going to expand to this next title. And, you know, if those two go good, then we'll launch another league. And, you know, that might be something. So, you know, I definitely see how, there's lots of options to see what actually works.
0: Yeah, the business side of me is always talking, thinking about, and the tech side of me especially, because tech is all about growth. Is like, you know, how can this thing grow and really just, you know, take off and grow like a weed, um, especially kind of organically uh, from a word-of-mouth perspective? And, and one thing in the tech world, and it's just a little bit of a side tangent, but I think it could apply to this too, is, you know, companies... Um, that have a localized presence, like Uber, uh, you know, where you're local ride hailing, uh, or Airbnb, where you're locally staying somewhere. You know, all those types of tech companies started in one location first, then it went to a second location, then a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, um, because by doing it in a clustered, say, city like San Francisco or. LA or New York, whatever it might be, they can, you can drive word of mouth faster than if you have a little bit here in Nebraska and a little bit there in Colorado and a little bit there in South Dakota, it's just harder for that to spread as quickly. Whereas, you know, if you, if you do it in class, you could even just start with like four cities to start with and go to eight, 16, et cetera. Um, but I think if they did that, I, I, and, and also bring the in-person presence back because one thing I think we saw from um, traditional sports in the last year, 15 months is boy do in, person, fans matter. I mean, we're just seeing it right now at the NBA playoffs. The reality is, is the home teams are starting to get a home court advantage back because they've pack, started packing their arenas. Whereas, you know, three, four months ago, it wasn't a big deal. Who cared if you wanted the road? There's nobody in the stands. Um, and I think by doing that and just hearing and seeing people cheering wildly and loudly it just kind of gets you stimulated and thinking about, you know, how fun and exciting this could be. And of course, then you broadcast those or stream those um it just kind of feeds off itself like um you know i i used to game maybe like 20 25 years ago i haven't at all any time recently but i could see myself getting kind of worked up in in a good way and and get excited about this if i could find these streaming on tv if i could see people in the audience cheering them on um you know if i saw kind of some structure to the leagues and stuff like that i think i think it. i mean it's great that it started what it has kind of in a off the cuff way, but I I would love to see some more formalization around it. And then of course the betting piece comes in and there's more engagement from that. So it just feels like, you know, in the next three to five years, we can really get esports to that next level if we, if we do some of those things.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, they definitely were, you know, incorporating home and in-person events Um, before Mm -hmm. COVID happened. There was, I'm um, a pretty, you know, I think there was maybe two Call of Duty Pro League events that were pretty sold out and were just, you know, looked like they were an amazing time and I know the New York team was all ready to sell out their events here so I think that as things starting to to open up the lands and the in person events will surely follow and you'll be able to really start building some of this affinity that you know, they're hoping to do. And I think that's kind of the biggest selling point to a lot of these franchises, because, you know, the media talks about the price tag for a lot of them. You're talking about, you know, 20, $30 million for a slot for some leagues and, you know, or 15 or 20 million for other leagues. So, right. you know, it's not talking about some hundred thousand dollar buying. We're talking about real money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as an owner, you want to understand what this investment does and how you can recoup it. And, you know, kind of understanding, like you said, the in-person and what that adds and the enthusiasm and how it pumped your players get. And people want to go to live events, especially now when they've been kind of cooped up for a year plus. So right. you know, I think that these leagues, if they do it right, are in a great position because people just want to do stuff. You know, they just want to do unique, fun stuff. And if you kind of make it into a fan fest where there's music performances and giveaways and, you know, and you make it into something, People are going to come and they're going to have a good time and they're going to want to come back.
0: Absolutely. 100% agree. Well, and let's then use it as a segue to talk about like player salaries and player compensation and, you know, and also how that looks from like a legal and even a betting perspective. So, um, you know, clearly sports players don't make as much as, say, NFL players or NBA players. But um, do you see yeah. Yes, exactly. That's where I was going. Do you see that evolving to the point where, you know, maybe in the next couple of years, they start making the six figures on a consistent basis, like many or all of them. um, And then obviously moving to seven and eight figures and and so forth.
1: Definitely. I mean, if you look at the Forbes list now, there's probably at least 10 people that are making, you know, between 10 to 15 to $20 million plus. And, you know, talent that I'm working with are, you know, all making six figures plus, Um, you know, if you're streaming full time, you're assigned to an org. You're doing pretty good. You know, one of the TikTok people we work with is making like a million plus just from TikTok alone. So, you know, while it's not the $100 million or $200 million deals at A-Rod and, you know, to share or signing, um, I think that things are going towards that route. Um, I know recently like Ninja had, it was known that he got like $30 million from Microsoft to go over to Mixer. So it's like, okay, when you're throwing out numbers like that, Well it's not three hundred million or two hundred million, it's starting to trend into those, you know, truly life no obviously life-changing money, but this kind of generational wealth that if you make twenty or fifty million dollars in a two, three-year period as a pro gamer and you don't, you know, spend an absurd amount of money on, you know, houses and cars and whatnot, you'll be in a really good position. And I think that, you know, even the people that are you know, on a lower level where they're only, you know, streaming to, you know, 50 or hundred people, they're doing pretty well. They're, you know, probably making a couple thousand dollars a month, depending. And, you know, some of these players in these leagues, you know, some of the statistics and, you know, available in my book is some of these players are making, you know, 70 to 80 K yearly salary. Some of the call of duty ones are making, you know, double or triple that, you know, six figures plus. So, you know, you're getting six figures to play a video game plus room and board and travel and food and, you know, essentially that's just on top of all that stuff. So, you mm-hmm. know, they're definitely doing pretty well. And what's nice is you can kind of, you know, younger age. So, you know, work with like a 16 year old who's, you know, crushing it. And, you know, you could be a 14 or 15 year old and making millions of dollars. You know, there was people who were in the Fortnite World Cup who, you know, there was a player phase manga who was 14 and I think he made 1.8 million or something. It was just like um, he bought his mom a house, and it was just like, okay, like I just made a million dollars playing Fortnite.
0: Like, let's get a house. Amazing. Well, so one of the reasons I ask also is selfishly, and what I mean by that is, is that you know one of the hesitancies I theoretically have, for example, in Zen Sports offering esports betting is um, just the integrity of it, right? Because the last thing that you want is uh, an esports player who's only making twenty thousand dollars a year to have somebody approach them. Asking them to throw a match for ten or twenty thousand bucks in the NFL, you would never get that because there's too much at risk, and they make too much money. They would never, they would never risk their huge salaries uh, to get you know an extra twenty or fifty thousand dollars. But if an esports player is only making thirty or forty or fifty a year, and somebody comes along and gives them ten thousand to throw something, um, you know that's that's a legitimate issue. And so one of the reasons I'd love to see their salaries get up, you know, uh, grow uh, and be something meaningful. Is because then the just the integrity of it increases. There's a lot more for them to lose if they try to do something stupid. Um, and and then the betting world benefits from the just the higher integrity of it. Not saying that there is that going on, um, but just you know, oh, theoretically.
1: There is. There, there is, I mean, that's a shame. And then I think the point that you bring up, you know, that is definitely one of the big kind of stains on esports and professional gaming, is there is a long tradition of match fixing and cheating and you know, kind of essentially gambling on matches you're playing in. Actually, this week the ESI, which is the Esports Integrity Commission, just announced a bunch of people that were, you know, found cheating and match fixing on tournaments they were playing in. And I think it's for that exact reason. Um a, a while ago, there was a big thing in StarCraft 2 of all these players that were essentially in that same position where you know the local crime family is like. We're gonna pay you a lot of money and you have to do this. And it happened, and you know, it's prevalent and it, it's a shame. And I think a couple of months ago, the same EC ESCI, Esports Integrity Commission. Sorry, I keep butchering it, but you know, you can find them. They banned like 39 players for match fixing down in Australia and for CSGO, where essentially you could tell because everything is in the computer and you know everything's recorded, all your different strokes and the way you and then all the betting. So it was just kind of a big thing. I think, like, whoever the federal authorities in Australia were involved, because, you know, it's federal crime to do all these things. So, you right. know, there is a sad tradition. I think that and toxicity are probably like the two biggest negatives I see in esports and gaming at this highest level is the prevalence for match fixing and cheating and betting on your own competitions, which, you know, a lot of contracts with major teams prevent. And, you know, it's just kind of one of these things where it's against the integrity of the game to cheat, and nobody likes cheaters. So, right. you know, I think that because it's digital, it's also a little bit harder sometimes to get caught, where, like, if you miss a free throw or, like, completely brick a shot <laughs> or, like, throw an interception that you should never have thrown, it's really hard to be like, oh, well, uh, uh, well, you know, like, it's a lot harder to wish away. So I think that you know your point is correct that there is this issue and that you know kids making more money will make it you know less prevalent and hopefully understand the repercussions that it's not just oh well I'm going to get a slap on the wrist it's like no you're going to go to jail right. like this is not okay like this is a crime like match fixing betting manipulation like like these are real things because it's affecting the public and you're harming the public and you're really destroying the credibility of the institution that you're involved in so you know hopefully to all those cheaters out there you gotta stop enough <laughs> is enough
0: your lawyers and told you, you think to think about stop.
1: yeah exactly if you're thinking about cheating just don't
0: be 100%.
1: you know be better be a competitor be a professional because like you said the only way for everything to grow is for everyone to grow
0: Exactly and and that's the thing is that sometimes you know, especially for talking about young kids right they're just a little short sighted they're not thinking about what you just said. Um, they don't care they're like, at ah, whatever you know I think i'm not gonna get, they're not going to get caught and um, reality they do and so that's definitely uh, something that uh, hopefully as more structures brought to these. Leagues and these tournaments and more money, um, you know, those things will start to take care of itself. And, and I, I would assume, from your perspective, you know, this would offer huge opportunities, you know, to maybe obviously partner with the with the leagues on the legal side in structuring some of those, uh, you know, protocols and stuff like that in place, as well as you know, uh, with regulators and, and whatnot on this. I think it's a it's a it's a legal windfall, um, but in a good way for all parties. Uh, so that's I think that's where things will hopefully head um and that's that's awesome and especially for you you know being in the space
1: yeah i mean i think just kind of you know touching on that point like the biggest hurdle in that is you know there's no like overall governing body there's no international you know ioc that governs sports there's no general athletic commissions that govern us you know athletics or basketball it's, you know esports is kind of all over the place you have you know some global esports federations kind of claiming jurisdiction but what do they really have jurisdiction over And you have different countries with their own organizations but it's not like it's you know the u.s federal government that they have some like you know executive power or legislative you know essentially privilege these are just nonprofit organizations that were founded by people that want to you know progress values in esports and gaming in the countries or you know, in the continent. So right. I think, you know, there's no world anti-doping or any of these kind of organizations that are officially recognized to handle this kind of policing. You know, even the organization I mentioned, the, the E S I C, they are just an organization of volunteers of people that kind of saw this need. And, you know, they've gotten buy-in from teams and event organizers and, you know, interested parties, But it's not like a court where they can be like, okay, you cheaters, you are banned from esports. Like their only enforceability is if these developers and these team owners and all these people say, okay, well, we're not going to sign him or let him play because he cheated, you know? So it's like they don't really have this true judiciary um, power the same way an IOC might or, you know, a real authorized government body might.
0: Right. No, that makes sense. So you wrote a book. Um, and I'd love to ta- spend a few minutes on that. Um, it's called the Essential Guide to the Business and Law of Esports and Professional Video Gaming. So, can you give us just kind of a high level, uh, you know, overview of what it's about? What 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 prompted you uh, and uh, made you decide to write a book? Because that's got to be its own, you know, beast and animal in terms of time to allocate and and work that goes into that. Would love to just get your thoughts on. I mean, I've always been intrigued by the idea of writing a book. Um, so, I'd love to hear what it's about and, and kind of what. Uh, got you to write it,
1: yeah. So you know, my recently re- released textbook kind of looks at the business and legal matters in the esports world. So it kind of looks at the different business stakeholders in what the business ecosystem I call it the the gamers and the teams and the developers and the different event organizers. Then it starts exploring different legal matters as they relate to esports and gaming. So intellectual property, like copyrights and trademarks, employment and player unions, you know, business investments and tax write-offs, immigration and visas, you know, social media and music licensing, and just general IP licensing and name and likeness. And, and then you know one of the things that I think is most unique about it is the contract chapter where we actually look through um, sample clauses from pro gamer and pro streamer and coach and caster agreements and kind of give a little insight and analysis on what the, the clause means and what kind of negotiation tips and different things the parties might look for. And, you know, I kind of wrote it because I really felt that there was a void and, you know, there are only so many people that are doing this high level that could really speak on it intelligently. And, you know, I felt that this was something I wish existed when I kind of started and when I got into it. So I felt it was my turn to do it. And, you know, it took, you know, about a year to write and then uh, another wow. half a year with the whole editing process to get it released. But, How many pages is it? Um, It's about 300 pages. Wow. and You know, it's good. And uh, this past semester, I used it with my class. So I was really excited to be able to kind of get some feedback and use it with actual students. And, you know, I'm just hoping more schools continue to adopt it.
0: Right, right. And, and so it, so you actually do use it for the classes that you teach in North Carolina. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, so I use it
1: there. And I'm actually going to be teaching a high school class this upcoming fall and working with some other universities on developing their curriculum. So yeah, it's nice that I kind of developed the book, knowing that I was going to hopefully use it to teach and kind of made it so that others can use it because I just felt like what's out there was just wasn't on the true academic level that Institutions, universities need, and that was kind of the way I approached it, where I was able to take the existing literature and just kind of expand on it, and amplify it, and bringing some of the unique knowledge that me as an attorney practicing in this space knows.
0: Yeah, and so is this the kind of book that's going to need? multiple editions right so this edition that you have is you know for a certain time period are you going to feel like the need every three to five years to update it with a new edition is that the type of is this the type of book that that applies to i'm not really kind of sure from a an academia perspective if that's needed or not
1: yeah i mean i would definitely say that you know the thing about esports and one of the biggest you know kind of criticisms i got was like oh how can you keep it updated it really kind of keeps changing and you know my kind of answer to that was I kind of structured it where there are certain things that are just really established and known, you know, all of a sudden a player salary from a team isn't going to evaporate. Sponsors are not going to not be involved in the ecosystem. So I was able to kind of set out things that, you know, I believe are kind of ingrained principles at this time while also leaving the possibility for going forward with the new additions. And that's where I think the class comes in and the lectures as a way to kind of um, supplement, What might not be there where you know things that not necessarily were known or happening in part of the industry you know a year ago or two years ago are now part of it and that's why teaching a class or helping develop it lets you kind of fill in some of those things and nothing is really earth-shattering like you know there's not like a new thing that changed the whole entire industry so i really thought that being able to kind of have this set, knowing that okay, yeah, there are going to be new updates and there are going to be new things and college esports has gotten much bigger and you know, recreational esports has, you know, taken off and, you know, these other areas, but they're not like super important game changing things where it's like, okay, recreational esports is now much bigger than it ever was. You just can kind of comment on it anecdotally. I don't think you necessarily are missing a huge part
0: of what's going on by it not being in the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That makes
0: that makes total sense. So as we wrap up here, I'll ask you kind of one final question. If you could peer into your crystal ball and squint, say five years into the future, um, where do you see esports being at that point in time and and uh, what does the legal landscape look like for it? I mean, I think
1: esports are just going to continue to grow. If anything, you know, COVID in the last you know year, two years has shown us that gaming and community and it's just growing you know you see all athletes and musicians and all other celebrities starting to show it getting involved in it and when there was nothing else going on for months gaming was just thriving you know you have the nba 2k league on espn2 and you know someone who was very involved in the league i never imagined especially this early on that it would be on espn2 mm-hmm. 8 p.m on a weekday that's prime time basketball baseball hockey whatever you know sport on espn but there wasn't. So, you know, NBA 2K was able to be remote and, you know, they got amazing exposure and it really helped them grow the league because now their sponsors are getting national coverage. You're getting 30 to 50,000 more viewers that you never would have gotten, which just totally expands everything. So, you know, I think that everything's just going to continue to grow. And on the legal side, I think, I hope that, you know, players especially the up-and-coming young gamers take this more seriously and understand that what they sign matters has implications and repercussions and like you said they can't be so short-sighted they have to look deeper and beyond two months or three months or five months from now and see that if they want to do this and have a career that they have to understand how things impact them long term like you know, I'll kind of close it with this. I was actually a colleague of mine reached out to me where, you know, he has a player that signed to, you know, a smaller org. And now he became a superstar and all these teams want to buy him. And Mm -hmm. essentially he's locked. And his lawyer was like, I wish I would have, you know, I wanted to push harder on certain things, maybe get him a buyout or an opt out clause, some way to get him out in case the unexpected happens. He becomes a superstar. And, you know, his player was like, Oh, I don't want to push. I I really just want to get started you know, getting paid to play. Like, this is my dream. And, you know, he didn't push. And a year and a half later, the player's like, Oh, I'm so upset. Look, I really wish I would have listened to you and I would have done this right. And it's like, I hate saying I told you so, but (laughs) you know, moving on. So it's just kind of like, I hope that the legal side of it has moved forward and matured and the people involved in it, especially on the talent side, understand the need and the value that, you know, me or any of my other colleagues bring to the table. So that's kind of where I think things should hopefully evolve. And you're badly needed,
0: right? I mean, like, as we talked about before bringing more structure to the industry, that includes legal and that includes, you know, understanding, you know, what can and can't be done. Um, not just, you know, kind of from a criminal perspective, like, you know, we talked about before with like mat- match fixing, but also just, you know, contracts and, uh, you know, IP rights and, uh, you know, whatever else that might entail, um, you know, for compensation or anything like that. Right. Um, so as, as it grows, I I a hundred percent agree with you. And I think what you're bringing, like actually validates and brings validity, you know, to the industry as, as more, um, you know, concrete legal structure comes around it. So, um, Super awesome. Really great. And yeah, I just want to thank you uh, a lot, Justin, for, for joining the pod. You were super awesome guest. Uh, It was really a a great talk. Really interesting to hear uh, about the esports world and all the different uh, legal aspects that go into it. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today on the Ball & Chain pod and uh, have a wonderful, uh, wonderful week.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And for all the listeners out there, make sure to follow me on Twitter. Justin J E S Q. My DMs are open. So if you have any questions, feel free to shoot me a
0: message. I'm Justin. Thanks so much for being on today. And to all of our listeners and audience out there, have, have a, a great day. week. Bye-bye. Bye bye.